The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Fatal distraction. He warned of the outbreak and was told to stop. Now a Chinese doctor is dead after he himself contracted the virus. But the official story is sowing anger and doubt. Fanning the flames. Donald Trump wasted no time letting the world know how he feels about his acquittal on impeachment charges. But a Democratic strategist says the president has only fired up his opponents to win November. In northern British Columbia, hereditary chiefs face arrest in their protest against the coastal gas link pipeline. Our guest, whose job it was to mediate between the sides, says it's a sad day. Going off the rails, a train carrying crude oil veers off track and bursts into flames in Saskatchewan just months after a similar accident nearby. We'll hear from a truck driver who ran to help. Ahead of their time, to capture the big stars of Little Women, the film's on-set photographer decided that his equipment and his process had to click with the period. And acting the age. It's been a decade since a meme of a sad Keanu Reeves eating a sandwich exploded online, but it's making history once again in a classic Depression-era photo. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that makes Keanu observations. He had the courage to speak out about a mysterious new virus he saw emerging in Wuhan, China. Then, after facing intimidation from local officials, Dr. Li Wenliang came down with the coronavirus himself. Earlier today, state news in China reported that Dr. Li had died. Then, mysteriously, authorities backtracked, claiming he was still alive. And later, confirmation finally came that the doctor had succumbed to the virus. Cecilia Wang is a researcher at The Economist. She's been following the Chinese social media reaction to Dr. Li's story. We reached her earlier today in Shanghai, a few minutes before Dr. Li's death was finally confirmed. Cecilia, can you describe the reaction you have seen tonight to the news about Dr. Li? Uh, since the news broke, um, I'm seeing a lot of raw emotions on China's social media, like uh, WeChat and the Twitter-like uh, Weibo. I'm seeing an outpouring of grief over the death of Dr. Li Wenliang and tributes to his courage, and also mixed with a seething anger um, that could be described as the system. Um, some people are even describing it as the first national mourning on WeChat. Can you tell us about the, the conflicting stories that were coming out about whether Dr. Lee had actually died. Uh, this is a very bizarre case. Um, the official mouthpiece, um, uh, Global Times and People's Daily, both reported on it, and also not just 
uh, in Chinese, but also on uh, Twitter. Their uh, Twitter accounts both uh, posted it, and but later they deleted these reports. Can you just tell us a bit of the, the background story of Dr. Lee? I mean, he was among the first to raise concerns about the the new coronavirus. What, when was that, and what did he what did he do? At the end of December last year, he sent out a message in a uh, WeChat group chat uh, alerting uh, his classmates. I think it, uh, it was a group of uh, his uh, university classmates. He uh, was saying there were seven confirmed SARS cases in a, a seafood market. At, at the time, he said it was SARS because at the time we didn't know it was this new coronavirus. And uh, a few days later, this uh, someone took a, a screenshot of this interaction and uh, sent this photo to multiple group chats, and then uh, it started to circulate on uh, the Chinese social platforms. What was the reaction on the part of the authorities to that? A few days later, the uh, local uh, police apprehended him and asked him to sign uh, a document uh, saying he understood his mistake and uh, he would stop doing that. Stop doing what? Stop telling people that there was a, a potential danger to, to their health? What the police accused him of doing was spreading rumors. And uh, after uh, he was apprehended by local police, uh, even Chinese official media reported on this story saying eight people were spe- spreading rumors about a virus. So, okay, now this is the timeline here. We're talking about uh, early January at this point, right? Yes. And it's still at this point, the, uh, the Chinese authorities are not letting the, their, their own people know or the world know that there is this potential crisis. Correct. Uh, they were even uh, discrediting Dr. Lee and uh, the seven others. How did he get sick? Allegedly, he got sick uh, for treating a patient. This is when he uh, knew there was a virus or at least uh, there was uh, this pneumonia happening at the time. He wasn't sure at the time that it was contagious. So I understand that by the time he was being diagnosed, China was still insisting there were no new cases. And this is like by January 10th. So at this point, the, the virus is spreading quite rapidly, isn't it? Yes. Uh, but at the time, uh, the number was going up and more people were getting sick during that time. But the government uh, didn't announce it was as serious as it, um, it was actually was until, I think, uh, past the 20th of January. And he started to show symptoms around 10th of January. And I understand that Dr. Lee was continuing to give interviews. He was still speaking out about what he knew, even as he was gravely ill and in hospital. What, what was he saying? In a Taishin interview, he said that a healthy society should not have just one voice. I think that struck chords for a lot of people in China. And speaking out for him, at first he got reprehended. And later, I think he uh, got to a point where people realized that uh, how serious the situation was. So people were giving, kind of supporting him in a way to make him relatively untouchable, I would say. 
You mentioned that the the outpouring of response is grief and that people are angry at the system. What are they saying about the system, the Chinese system? People right now are saying uh, while he was alive, he didn't have the freedom to speak. Now he has passed. He doesn't have uh, the freedom to die. So people are kind of seeing him as a symbol, as a martyr. And just finally, I understand his parents are both ill now with the virus. He has a a child, a young child, and his wife is pregnant with another child. Do you know how they are, if if the, the child and his wife are okay? What we know for sure is that Dr. Lee, in an earlier interview, said that uh, his parents both uh, were confirmed of contracting this virus earlier. But we don't know um, how they are doing. Uh, one version is that they have uh, they have been cured and have left the hospital, and the other version is they are in critical conditions and. Um, As for his child, some are saying the wife is with her family outside of Wuhan and she is okay. And uh, another version is saying that she is also in critical conditions after contracting this virus. So we have... We don't have a confirmed news report on how uh, his family is doing right now. So difficult to get straight answers. Eh? Cecilia, I know it's very late there, and yeah. I appreciate you'd speak with us. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Cecilia Wang is a researcher with The Economist. We reached her earlier today in Shanghai. If you live in the small village of Guernsey, Saskatchewan, it was a scary sight to wake up to. Just after 6 a.m., 31 train cars derailed, starting a huge fire and sending billows of black smoke into the air. The train was carrying crude oil. And that fire meant Guernsey, which is just half a kilometer from the derailment, had to be evacuated. Two months ago, another train, also carrying crude oil, derailed just 10 kilometers away from today's site. After this morning's accident, the federal government ordered all trains carrying dangerous goods to travel no faster than 40 kilometers an hour. Kyle Brown is a truck driver who raced to the scene. We reached him in Calgary at the airport where he had just landed. Kyle, when you were on the road early this morning, what was the first sign of trouble that you saw? Um, I mean, the first thing I saw was the, the big mushroom of, uh, of fire in the sky. What did you think that was when you saw it? I mean, originally, I thought it was a vehicle behind me. Um, it lighted up the truck from behind so much, I thought it was a, another vehicle behind me. And, uh, I mean, I looked in the mirror, and I could see the flames and, and smoke. And, and right away, I knew exactly what it was. Uh-huh, so you could see it behind you. So what did you do when you saw the fire in your rearview wind, uh, mirror? I, I turned around as fast as I could. And, and, I mean, obviously, the first concern was, is there any houses close by? I'm, I'm not uh, particularly familiar with, with that area. So my first thing was, you know, was there any houses, you know, real close by? And obviously the uh, the conductors and the engineers and all that after making sure that none of those guys were, were hurt or, or trapped or anything like that, which, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do much for them anyway, other than uh, make the call to the, to the RCMP to 911 and, and get uh, get some help for them. But And so when you got there, you could, could you see, I mean, I know this is early in the morning, it's still dark out. Could you see what had happened? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there was train cars on, almost on the road. 
Wow. How many cars did you see had derailed? I it was very hard to tell. Like there was there was a big fire, lots of smoke, but I estimated, you know, 25 to 30 for sure. And did you see anybody who needed help? I did not. Um, I actually came across one of the uh, train conductors uh, about 10 minutes after. Uh, I was still on the phone with 911, and I could see him walking down the track with a flashlight. So I went and checked on him, and I said, you know, um, is all your crew accounted for? You guys are okay? And he's like, yep. Yeah. He's like, we got radio contact with all of our crew on both ends of the train. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's one thing that's taken care of, obviously. And could you feel the heat from this fire? I definitely could, yeah. I passed by it originally uh, right away, and, and I could feel the heat on my leg through the door. Wow, because we're talking about crude oil on fire here, right? Yeah, it is. And so what did, were, were you able to talk much with the conductor whom you met? Yeah, I did. I, I actually gave him a ride. He, uh, he was putting out some flares on the road so uh, to warn some more motorists because no one was stopping. Everyone was slowing down, you know, taking their pictures and videos, and they were stopping pretty close to the flames and, I mean, I didn't even feel comfortable passing by it at 100 kilometers an hour. I don't see how they could feel comfortable stopping there. Jeez. And so, so what did he tell you about what had happened? He told me that uh, he actually, they didn't even realize they had had a derailment. Um, they have some emergency um, systems in their locomotives that monitor air pressure drop. And it automatically uh, applies all brakes on the train. So that was their first indication, according to the uh, the conductor. And as soon as their emergency system kicked in, obviously they looked behind them. They could see the fire and, and the mess. And they unhooked from the cars that were still hooked up to them right away and, and moved away. Wow. And so he, the people, any people on the train would have been with that, that front section that could move away? Yes. Huh. And so they, how quickly after that did you start to see emergency crews arriving? It was actually quite a while. I want to say probably 25 minutes to a half an hour. Volunteer firefighters coming, eh? Yes, it is. What were they able to do when they got there? They didn't really do much. I I guess they uh, assisted the the RCMP's original um, request, which was closing the road, keep the traffic out of it. I had actually spoken to one of the firefighters. He actually worked at the landing in mine. He told me he was on his way to work and... Obviously, he came up on it the same as I did and turned around and went back to, to join into the fire department for, for their response. And uh, he had actually told me that he thought that they were shutting down the Lanigan mine because of the smoke. Um, obviously, they don't want crude oil smoke getting down into their, their mine shaft. And did you stay until day until it was light out? Just about. I did have to leave because, like, I had to catch this flight, so. Right. But you could see, I mean, now we can see that, the, but later on you could see the smoke, the how thick black that smoke was once mm-hmm. you, when daylight. But you, I, did you know how dense that smoke was that you you were standing beside? Yeah, yeah. You could, you could definitely see it even in the dark. There was lots of lights from the mine, so you could, you could see how thick it was. Do you know that that's in the same, just roughly the same place that there has was another train derailment just about almost exactly two months ago to the day, and that they uh, there's a leak of about one and a half million liters of crude. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Do you know anything about that particular stretch? Why that? Why it has? Why it's so problematic? I mean, I have my personal opinion, which is uh, poor track maintenance. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. You yourself, you're a truck driver for an oil refinery, right? I am, yes. How do you feel about trains being the main transport for carrying crude? Well, 
Everybody that keeps on top of any of this stuff, they'll all remember the, the big accident in Quebec there a few years ago and the loss of the town and, and, and the loss of life and people. And I mean, every town's got to think of that. Every town that's got a, that's got a set of tracks running through it when they see these, these crude oil trains running through. And this particular stretch, there was people living close by, but nothing like, Lake, like you're talking about Lac Megantic and that horrible situation yes. in that town. Yes. People have said in the past that the argument is that it's, it's safer to go by train than by pipeline. So what, what do you say to that? I really don't believe that. I really don't believe that at all. Uh, there's so many different factors, so many different moving parts of trains compared to a, a stationary oil pipe. I, I, I just believe that an oil pipe can be serviced and maintained so much better. Well, you know what? I know you've had a very long day. You've been really helpful for us, and I'm sure very helpful for those people at the train. That was uh, was great that you were there. And Kyle, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. No problem. Take care. You too. Kyle Brown is a truck driver for an oil refinery who raced to the scene of today's derailment in Saskatchewan. We reached him in Calgary. <laughs> Greta Gerwig may have been shut out of the Best Director category at this weekend's Oscars, but her movie Little Women is still being honored as a complex, well-made picture, with five other nominations. And speaking of complex, well-made pictures, there are Wilson Webb's photographs of the movie's cast. Mr. Webb has been an on-set photographer for years. He also took behind-the-scenes shots of another major 2020 contender, Marriage Story. But never before has he shot images quite like the ones he took of Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy March. We reached Wilson Webb in St. Paul, Minnesota. Wilson, what made you decide you're going to approach the on-set photography for Little Women a little bit differently? Uh, as soon as I talked to Greta and she offered me the job, I just knew that this was a perfect way to use photography in the period of the film. And Greta being Greta Gerwig, who is the who is the director of Little Got Women, it. yeah. And so, how did you um, work on this? Like, you had there's a process you have to go through. What what is exact? What's it called? This this photography system that you're using. Well, there's a few different ways that it's often referred to. Um, collodion is one term that's used a lot because that's the medium that holds the silver to. Uh, be exposed by light. Wet plate is another one, or tintype is a very famous term back in the 1850s and 60s. But how difficult is it to take photographs with this? It's quite a process. Uh, It involves a lot of steps. There is some dangerous chemicals, although they're not as bad as uh, some other photo processes that are historically very, very dangerous. But um, there are many, many steps that, if they're not followed, can uh, result in getting no image whatsoever. Oh, dear. Okay, that's no good. Um, and, and so is it just like, we've seen it in the movies, the old cameras that you have to go, you're, you're underneath the cloth, there's, a, there's a, a flash that goes off that is blinding. Is, is, that, is, that, how, is that what you were talking about here? That is what we're talking about. We're talking about a large format camera. So it's an 8 by 10 big view camera with a big piece of glass on the back. And the lens that I'm using is a 139-year-old Dahlmeyer lens made in London. And uh, there is a ton of light. There's 25,000 watts seconds of flash. So when that goes off, 
the person sitting in front of the camera can feel a wave of heat and they can also smell the uh, ozone that's created when the picture's taken. <laughs> Good grief. And so, uh, um, and the camera itself, the Collodian camera, is it from, is it of the era as well? Actually, no. The, the camera, oddly enough, is fairly new from a company called Intrepid. It sort of wasn't the best choice, but it's what I had. But the, the but, so the I, lens, but the lens is this circa Little Women, is it? That's correct. And it's a very large brass lens that weighed four times as much as the camera body itself. <laughs> so I had to make supports and I had to kind of make sure it was going to stay steady. Wow. Okay, so now you got them in for the portraits and describe I've seen them. They're 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 just beautiful. What what did you uh, have to do in order to have your your subjects sit for this? The, each of these actors who played one of the little women. Well, what I did was I would have them come over to my setup, my lighting setup, and I had a dark room, uh small dark room setup also because I need to do things as we're moving along. And then we would uh, pose, figure out a pose. I would focus uh, through the camera and say, okay, now you need to sit like that until I come back. I'm going to go put collodion on this piece of aluminum plate, dip it in the silver oxide, bring it back, take the picture, and then go back into my dark room, do a few other little chemical processes, and then we would dip it into the fixer and together we would look at the image come up much like an old Polaroid photo would come up. And so did they, now is it as they would have done in the 1860s, which is the era of the story, uh, did they have to stay very, very still for, for, for throughout there with, without <laughs> moving an, an eyelash? No, they only had to sit for maybe about 30 seconds. Okay, now the other thing that makes them very authentic is that Nobody is smiling, and as we know from photos of that era from the 19th century, that they everyone looks grim. I mean, is is there a reason why nobody smiles in these pictures? Yes, there's a couple reasons. The most uh, important and biggest reason was at the time photography was fairly new, and it was very serious. And to have a photo taken of yourself would cost a considerable amount of money. And what photography did at the very beginning was they were emulating portraits that were painted. So you also didn't see a lot of classic portraits where people were smiling. So this is mostly a stylistic reason, but it's also because it's hard to hold an expression for 20, 30 seconds. <laughs> now, everyone is quite very happy with these photos. How do you feel about it? Do you think you, you got what you wanted from, from this, this process? I think, yes, I'm very happy with uh, how they came out. Um, although, if I was trying to pass as a photographer in the 1860s, I would probably be laughed out of the studio. And the reason being is all the things that make them interesting now, the, the textures and the weird uh, shading and, and veining that you can kind of see in the portraits are interesting to us now because we're so mm, desensitized because of digital crisp, sharp photos. So, but back in the day, those are attributes that would have been seen as a mistake and would not have been presentable whatsoever. And do you but I'm happy. And, and, and you're happy. And do, and do you think that the, 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 the March sisters and Marmy March, do you think you've captured probably if, if they really were people, what they would have looked like? 
I think I got as close as I could with the tools and the time provided. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I could go and do it again, I might change some things, but that's always going to be the case. They're much closer to uh, how they would have been than I was afraid they would not be. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let, uh, you know what? We're going to let the listeners be the judge, and we're going to give them the the links they need to go and uh, and see okay. the, these uh, these really beautiful photographs, and uh, and we'll let them decide because clearly you're not going to judge your own work as generously no. <laughs> as they are. Wilson, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Wilson Webb is the on-set photographer for 2020 Oscar contenders Little Women and Marriage Story. We reached him in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can see Mr. Webb's photos of the March women on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. He's more accustomed to looking for votes than for love. But an ad on an online dating site makes it look like the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, is all about kissing mature singles instead of kissing babies. The trouble is he never signed up for that site. His photos were used without his permission and are likely associated with a fraudulent account. Mayor Jim Diodati says people have posed as him on dating sites for years and he's tried to shrug it off. But now they've crossed a line after bringing his kids into the picture. The CBC's Daniel Takama spoke with Mayor Diodati about the situation. On one end, you feel invaded, and in another end, you're flattered. So, you know, I'm not really sure how to take it, but I had quite a number of friends screenshotting this and sending it to me and asking me, what's up? And I, I sent back question marks, and finally I thought, probably better I get ahead of this and maybe deal with it, and we'll see where it goes. I didn't expect it to pick up steam. I thought it to fade it away. <laughs> it's been happening over the years, so I'm in my 10th year as mayor, and it started happening within the first couple of years. You know, I would have strangers from the United States email me and say, you should be aware that someone's using your identity. So the whole thing seemed odd. I didn't know how to take it. I, I thought I felt kind of weird about it. But what really got me rubbed the wrong way was when they used my kids. So I've got three kids, 13, 16, and 18, and someone on Plenty of Fish is using pictures of my kids to market their own dating potential, and that just was creepy. Yeah, I got you. So this is a bit of a personal question, but are you looking for love? Is there any potential kind of crossover confusion there? (laughs) Well, who's not looking for love? But... Uh, but I'm not, I've never been on a, a dating website and I have nothing against them. Um, you know, I'm a single dad, you know, three kids, you know, I got a busy, busy job, a busy life. Is there a bit of a silver lining for this uh, in that maybe, you know, uh, even though you're not on these dating sites, these ads could work out for you maybe. <laughs> well, you know, what do they say in uh, politics? You know, any news is good news. Just spell my name right. That's Niagara Falls, Ontario Mayor Jim Diodati speaking with the CBC's Daniel Takama. Donald Trump is celebrating today. 
In fact, you could go as far as gloating. Yesterday, of course, the Senate acquitted the U.S. president on two impeachment charges. And this afternoon, Mr. Trump gave an hour-long victory speech that has been described by news outlets as freewheeling and vindictive. He made fun of his rivals, apologized to his family for what they'd been put through, and thanked his colleagues who defended him throughout the process. Here's a clip. This is really not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's just we're sort of, uh, it's a celebration because we have something that just worked out. I mean, it worked out. We went through hell unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. That was Donald Trump speaking earlier today. Kelly Dietrich is a strategist and the founder and CEO of the National Democratic Training Committee, which offers training to Democrats who want to run for office or work on campaigns. He's in Chicago. Mr. Dietrich, we just heard Donald Trump doing his victory lap. So what's the mood among Democrats today? I would say the mood is a mix of the continued frustration, anger, hope, and a determination to make a change in November. And what could you possibly do to make a change in November at this point? Because, I mean, a guest we had on last night, a Republican, said that this was Mr. Trump's best week ever, that he is high in the polls, he is lauding the economy that he's taking credit for. Not all of it's his, but he's, the economy is going booming in your country. What could you possibly point to as something that you could look to as optimism? Well, as we learned in 2016, Elections have consequences, and 2020 is not 2016. The then-candidate Trump came through that election proclaiming himself as the most successful businessman ever. People were able to project onto him what they wanted. Now, the president has a record. That record is filled with lies, mistruths, inviting foreign powers to interfere in our election. And while the president may be taking a quote-unquote victory lap, today, a vast majority of this country knows and understands, even if the Senate did not vote to acquit, that he used his presidency for personal gain and corruption. All right. But it seems that, well, first of all, he has the highest support in the Gallup poll ever since his beginning of his presidency. He's now close to half. And that a large number of Americans say, well, whatever. Presidents do that. Politicians do whatever they have to do. They don't seem to have a problem with what the what he was impeached for. So you're up against a lot of people who don't seem to think this this is a big deal. Welcome to American politics. Half the country is going to disagree with the other half. And this election in November 20, which is a political eternity from now, and while he may be, quote unquote, riding high at 49%, which is the highest he has been, there's a long way to go. And this election is never going to have 51 or even 52 percent of the people agree upon a candidate. This election will be won in a few key battleground states that matter most. We believe that a message, a continued message from the Democrats of health care access for everyone, that climate change is not a myth that issues that affect the real voter are what matter. And while Republicans like to point out 2016, I'd like to point out 2018, when a Democratic wave swept over the country at every level. 
at the National Tra Democratic Training Committee, we've been on the ground in all 50 states. And in every state, we have seen a continued amount of enthusiasm, of overwhelming engagement, of purpose, that Democrats are eager to get out and work and correct what they think was a horrible mistake the country made in 2016. Do you think that there has been a reliance on the part of Democrats on the idea that, that Donald Trump will expose himself, that he is his own worst enemy, that he will self-destruct, and that, that is, that's what's going to happen to the advantage of Democrats? Do you think there's a kind of, in some, to some degree, if not largely, a reliance on the idea that, that Mr. Trump is his own worst enemy? I would agree. I think that many in the Democratic Party would believe that the self-destructing <laughs> the self-destructing efforts and actions he's already taken would have been enough to remove any other president from office. But the president has shown that the normal rules and traditions don't apply to him. So in fact that he's not only will he not self-destruct, he appears to be indestructible. Well, I wouldn't go so far as indestructible. I think that in the current system it is set up where his party continues to put their own political power ahead of what's best for the country. So the only, at this point, the true referendum on Donald Trump will be the elections in November 2020. And I am optimistic and feel good about the Democratic chances. But what do the Democrats have to offer in November 2020? Where's the leadership? I know you're in the process of looking for that, but where's where's someone who's going to pull your party together? I mean, do you see that? It seems even among the candidates who are, 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 who are put forward, divisions and, dis and dysfunctional events like Iowa. Well, I would challenge the assumption, the question that the party is divided. It is not. It is having a primary process. And again, after working in all 50 states, we see this continually, that Democrats like a lot of these candidates. They may be voting for Warren or Biden or Bernie, but they're willing to work for whoever gets the nomination. The problems in Iowa have to do with the Iowa Democratic Party and not the party overall. The party overall is united behind a mission of winning in November 20. All right. If you have Joe Biden as your leader, he's going to be attacked by Donald Trump as being corrupt, along with his son. If you have Bernie Sanders as your leader or some others who are on that, that same left side of Bernie Sanders, he's going to be attacked by Donald Trump as being socialists. How, how do you defend that? Well, no matter who comes through the nomination, the Republican Party and Donald Trump are going to label them a socialist. They're going to say things like they want to take your health care away and give it to people who don't look like you. Unfortunately, those kinds of attacks are effective in certain parts of the country with certain voters. Unfortunately, they use emotion to create divisiveness, fear as a motivation for people to go out and vote. Democrats need to learn and understand that we can't use facts, figures, and logic to motivate people. We need to use emotion as well. Now, not the same emotions the Republican Party uses, but emotions when we talk about issues like healthcare, when we talk about issues like climate change. When my daughter goes outside to play, I have a six-year-old daughter. When she goes outside to play, I shouldn't be worried that she's going to get asthma because the coal plant they opened up down the street has been polluting the air. And then I can't get her covered because she has a pre-existing condition on healthcare that's too expensive for me. We need to personalize these stories and make it compelling to the voter. We will be watching. Mr. Dietrich, thank you. Hey, thank you very much. That was Democratic strategist Kelly Dietrich in Chicago. 
It came down to the wire, but Megan Millward and Leah Jung are finally heading home. Today, the Montreal couple and their two young kids were among 176 people who boarded a chartered plane out of Wuhan, China. They're expected to arrive at an army base in Trenton, Ontario, early tomorrow morning, where they'll be put under quarantine for 14 days. Mr. Zhang was not the only permanent resident given a ride back to Canada. There were 13 in all, but his spot wasn't confirmed until Thursday night local time. CBC Newsnet host Suhana Marchand spoke to the couple afterward as they waited by the gate. Everybody seems pretty relaxed, uh, relieved probably. Um, They're already lining up to head to the gate. We're thrilled that we're both here together and the kids are really excited because they're uh, moving walkways and vending machines and things to keep them busy. So everybody's in a pretty good mood. We're grateful for for coming back to uh, Canadian soil. Lee, I understand there was a question mark about your return to Canada. You are a permanent resident. There was a lot of talk about whether permanent residents will be allowed to board. How did that come about for you that you are at the airport and ready to get on that plane? You know, I I decided that I have to drive my wife and uh, two kids to the airport. Why I just wait here and maybe there is a chance. So, uh, so then I waited, waited. We were the last four to register on the plane, and uh, we told them our situation. And you know, the, the kids are so too young. And uh, then uh, they called the um, uh, uh, global affairs, call. global affairs, and also they talked to the Beijing uh, embassy as well. And they finally they confirmed, yes, you you are ready to go. So that was great, great news. Yeah, we didn't really think anything was going to happen because it was, I don't know, it was maybe 5 or 6 p.m. So apparently, because we came in the wrong door at the airport, if we had come in the proper departure uh, level door, they would have barred him entry because his name was not on the list at that point. But we parked the car in another parking lot and came in on the wrong floor. And so it's it was just like they a employee fluke. Us here. Yeah, yeah. They said, oh, you're in the wrong place, but we'll get you to the right place. So uh, he probably wouldn't have been able to, to board the flight, even if they had called me to say, OK, he can go because he, he wouldn't have been in the airport. It was just the pure luck that we got in by the wrong door. That's Montreal couple Megan Millward and Leah Zhang speaking to CBC Newsnet before boarding a government chartered plane out of Wuhan, China. A second chartered flight carrying the remaining Canadians is expected to leave Wuhan on Sunday. It's been a day of upheaval at the site of a proposed pipeline project through northern B.C. For weeks, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and their supporters have been demonstrating against the coastal gas link project. And now, RCMP officers have started making arrests. This morning's raid comes after talks broke down between the chiefs, the government, and the companies behind the proposed pipeline. Former NDP MP Nathan Cullen is the government-appointed liaison between the parties involved in those talks. We reached him in Smithers, B.C. Mr. Collin, as far as you know, what happened this morning at Giddemden Checkpoint? What we understand is that um, there's various kilometers you'll hear referred to that are along this, this forest service road. The police moved in at one of those kilometers to remove people. Uh, I don't believe Wet'suwet'en, but some su- supporters of Unistoten and the Wet'suwet'en. Um, and then beyond that kilometer point, there's a number of trees and such that are 
lying on the road that had been put there some weeks ago that I believe the police are then seeking to remove as well. And then there's a camp further on. And then much further on, 66 kilometers down the road, there is a, a healing center um, as well, which is at a near a bridge that has been of, of a lot of contention throughout this whole whole conflict. And so uh, all the people who were in those those places, those facilities, have, have they all been arrested? Um, I don't believe all of them have. I, I believe the number, the recent number I'm working with is six or seven. Uh, some people chose not to be arrested. I believe one person was a member of the media, and they were returned back to a, an earlier point in the road, essentially an ex- exclusion zone. I believe the RCMP refer to it as, and in that exclusion zone, they they remove people who are not there. I think there's working on an access protocol for the chiefs to be able to enter in, the hereditary chiefs, the Wet'suwet'en. And and what do you know about the timing of this? Why now? Why have the RCMP moved on those facilities and arrested people now? This, this was all stemming from an injunction, as you know, from uh, December 31st, a, a court order to clear this pathway for this company, CGL, to go in and build this uh, pipeline. And so just past week, uh, the Wet'suwet'en were in a conversation with the province of British Columbia to see if there was some way to avoid today, which is uh, a very bad day. You know, I can't, uh, being in this territory, settling in this territory with my family, this is not a good day. And this day was, um, everyone sought to avoid it. I don't think anyone wanted it. So why today? Um, While those talks were unsuccessful, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs um, continue to talk to the province about uh, other things and opening up what's called a Wagoose process. And that is something small, but hopeful in the future because there's going to be another day. And I sincerely hope, and I think it's everyone's intention, that the conversation between BC and the Wet'suwet'en in particular will continue and we don't end up in this position again. But you, uh, you've been appointed as the liaison between the province, the Wet'suwet'en, hereditary chiefs, the, the company. You have the trust of all those different parties. Do, do they share with you? I'm sure that the, the chiefs certainly share it, but do you think the government, mm. uh, the company, do, would they agree with your assessment that it's been a very bad day? I think that this day is happening at all is is not what anybody wanted. And I, again, won't speak for any of the parties, but the efforts that were put in to try to avoid this day, I think good faith efforts, I think they were sincere. Um, I wouldn't have done the small part that I was doing if I thought there was insincerity and that people were trying to end up with this enforcement and this day where people are being arrested. This can be quite re-traumatizing for people that um, interactions with the police over many years and generations have left a real mark. Uh, this is not uh, the way we want to be together. I can say that from the settler point of view now. What happens next is also of importance because the Wet'suwet'en aren't going anywhere and the issues that underpin what's happening today uh, will not be resolved by what's happening today. They'll be resolved by talks at a table that we can come to some point of uh, reconciliation between the parties. And so there's tons of work to be done, um, yet I, I, it might sound strange today. I, I, I feel incredibly shaken by this and sad, but I, uh, I, can, I can feel hopeful too because knowing these chiefs and the dignity and the authority they have and wanting to believe that the government in Victoria uh, wants to reconcile. We also, I would humbly suggest, need Ottawa to step up, who have been to this point completely to the side. Um, And that's unfortunate because I know Mr. Trudeau has made 
significant promises to Indigenous peoples to be there and do the hard work. Well, this hard work is needed here as much as it's needed anywhere in the country. Why do you feel shaken and sad today? Um, because uh, of the uncertainty, um, when emotions are running so high, when uh, people feel so passionately uh, about this, and rightfully so, and then when you bring in uh, significant police into an area, it all becomes uncertain. You can you can write down all the protocols and agree to all the steps that hopefully are taken to maintain safety for people, and yet it is uncertain still. And I have been personally too well aware of Canada's history when things go wrong, and I know significant number of people out on that territory and yet my discomfort or uh, sadness is absolutely nothing compared to what's going on for my Wet'suwet'en friends who um, again as, as I talked about uh, have a history with government and with police that is so different than yours and mine and and those are the folks that I'm most feeling for today because um, we we wish for something better we work for something better and I, I still got to hope that, that that better is really possible Uh, despite what's happening right now. Mr. Cullen, thank you. Thank you, Carol. Nathan Cullen is the government-appointed liaison between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, the government, and the coastal gas link pipeline. He was in Smithers, B.C. Earlier today, CBC spoke with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief Namox about this morning's arrests. We have not done anything illegal. The illegal actions are being taken on by the RCMP, the elected governments, provincial and federal, and they're being steered by industry. We are doing nothing illegal. We are following our law of protecting clean water, our food sources, our sacred sites, our village sites. And yet, this is how they treat us in a supposedly free and democratic country. This is not a, an example of democracy, and it sure is not an example of reconciliation. They don't realize the world is watching. What they are doing the second time now to our nation, to our people, to our lands. How could that be? That's Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief Namox speaking with CBC earlier today. As Chief Namox mentioned, today's arrests happened just over a year after RCMP officers arrested 14 people protesting the very same pipeline on Wet'suwet'en territory. In September of 1932, someone took a photo far above the streets of New York City. It's famously known as Lunch Atop a Skyscraper, and it depicts 11 iron workers on a girder, one of whom is enjoying a sandwich. In May of 2010, someone took a photo on the streets of New York City. It's famously known as Sad Keanu, and it depicts one actor, Keanu Reeves, on a park bench enjoying a sandwich, or judging by his expression, enduring a sandwich. The first picture symbolizes hope for a world recovering from the Great Depression. The second picture symbolizes despair for a handsome man recovering from his own lunch. The only thing they have in common is they both feature one half-eaten sandwich. 
So three things really stick out when you see lunch atop a skyscraper as it appeared in a grade 10 history textbook in Ukraine. First, there are two half-eaten sandwiches. Second, there are 12 men on the girder. And third, the 12th man is Keanu Reeves. You see, well, okay, so in 2010, sad Keanu became a meme. People photoshopped the sad-looking Mr. Reeves into all kinds of situations including into that famous photo, Lunch Atop a Skyscraper. And that is the picture that ended up in the Ukrainian high school textbook, illustrating a chapter about the United States between the wars. The publisher now says that it was a design error. The professor who wrote the textbook, however, says he put it in on purpose to appeal to today's youth. If that's true, he sounds like a fun, generous guy with a bit of a meme streak. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.